You are listening to the Time Traveler's Almanac, a podcast from the History Department at Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Hello and welcome to our show. My name is Natalia da Silva Perez. And I'm Isabella Restrepo. Today, we are so happy to have Dr. Peter van den Hede here with us. He's a lecturer and researcher at the Department of History at the Erasmus University, and he's also a member of this podcast. Welcome to the show, Peter. Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, looking forward to it. All right, Peter, let's start by hearing a little bit about yourself and how you came to research this topic of historical analogies. Okay, so for my background, I studied in Ghent in France, so I'm Belgian originally. I studied at the history department there. I did both my bachelor's and master's uh, at Ghent University. And so in my master's, I kind of got into public history or more popular forms of history making, where I started studying video games. That's actually my original topic. But so throughout, one of the key things that I'm interested in is how can we see history as an equipment for living? So what I mean by that is we have Uh, academic research going on and you go in depth, you know, you uncover a lot of detail, but at the same time, it might sometimes be a bit dry. And I view history as something that can just be helpful for everybody, you know, that you have an understanding of, oh, certain things come from a certain place. That's something that everybody can use. So then coming at the analogy part, it's something that you notice very often, right? People make analogies to past events and so on. Uh, but what we wrote about me and my colleague, Sara Polak, who couldn't be here, unfortunately, is, well, how can we do that better? You know, because I mean, it's always a bit of a struggle. You can think of quotes like history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I guess that's nice to put it in a literary manner, but it doesn't really say much in terms of tangible stuff, right? Like, what does that mean? So in light of that, we thought like, okay, how can we write something that might hopefully be useful to help people think about analogies more critically. Well, it seems you're actually no stranger to research, and that brings me to your most recent work, where you aim to provide a productive and more effective way of engaging with historical analogies. And in your work, you actually kind of give a definition of what a historical analogy is. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Okay, yeah. So if you think about an analogy, it's first of all a relation. It's not just two points of comparison, it's a relation of similarity. So A is like B versus C is like D. People tend to often relate those two points or they, they want to establish something. If you think about Nazi Germany and Hitler, when people reference that in comparison to a contemporary event, then they usually also have this underlying assumption of, oh, so this is going to go down that path. Hitler became dictator and then genocidal violence that followed that came out of that the events that we're seeing right now is the same so it's kind of like this broader relationship or trajectory that we're comparing and apart from that we draw from some other theory where we talk about well you know these things are often made for political or educational or other purposes so there's often also a certain goal that underpins these analogies that's kind of like the the two points that we would highlight One of the points that you guys make in the paper is that historical analogies can be seen as modes of investigation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, very happy to. So the key point is a lot of people make analogies very quickly. They say like, oh, they have a certain reference point. Oh, this is like Hitler or this is like, you know, the economic crisis of the 1920s and 30s. 
And that quickness with which people make those analogies, that's the, the thing that we try to subvert. So what we then add as a counterpoint is juxtaposition can be very good for insight. So applying it to me personally, even I'm from Belgium. I grew up there. I had my education there uh, and I have a certain baseline of assumptions right now. When I then started working in the Netherlands, all of a sudden I started working in another environment, culturally, socially speaking. And because of that, you get this juxtaposition of these two traditions and I become more aware of both simultaneously. I better understand what Belgium is or what Belgian Flemish culture is because I can contrast it with what happens in the Netherlands. When you think about analogies as a mode of investigation, that's kind of the exact same thing that we're trying to achieve. If you juxtapose two events and instead of just making it a, an easy shorthand for something, no, instead of that, you delve in and you actually investigate, all of a sudden you can gain a better understanding of both because you have a counterpoint to contrast it with. So that's kind of the core element that we're trying to pursue with this approach. That is actually so interesting. And that is why in your work, you introduce a new framework to test these analogies based on the metaphor of history as a sort of magic yarn ball. What was your inspiration to come up with this kind of framework, actually? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, this is actually very specific uh, and a little bit exciting, I guess. I have a couple of colleagues and friends who are very much into knitting. So on their social media, they would share, oh, I have a new sweater, you know, and they would share all that stuff, which is absolutely wonderful. And while seeing all of that stuff, I started delving a little bit. And then all of a sudden I came across this blog where that person talked about a magic yarn ball. And just to introduce that a little bit, whenever you are knitting something at a certain point, you're done uh, and you have leftover scraps. Now, by themselves, those threads aren't really sufficient to start anything new. So the magic yarn ball idea is then instead of throwing it away, what you could also do is just join those little threads, make one ball or a couple of balls from them. They're going to be multicolored and a bit weird, but also interesting because then you can use those to make colorful sweaters or whatever you're working on. So that idea resonated with me and also with Sarah, my co-author, because it kind of reminds us of what historical events also are. Um, historical events are these multiple things coming together. Certain threads are longer or shorter than others. Think about geography having a very long duration in terms of change versus like a, a battle or a political shift that's very short term. Now, uh, yarn balls are sometimes similar or different, right? Different colors, different lengths, different thickness of the yarn that you're working with. At the same time, because you're a craft artist, you make something that is fully unique. Uh, and so if you then have two historical events and you compare them to one another, you might see certain things that are similar, certain things that are different. And in that way, they are kind of like different balls of yarn, which also have those similarities and differences, but at the same time are also fully unique in their distinct configuration or composition. So that's what I would say. Then I guess moving on to the steps, right? So what that means. So in total, because we want to turn an analogy into a mode of investigation, we have three points that we would make. So the first thing is interrogation. So it starts with this exercise of questioning what you know. We all have our assumptions kind of inevitably. So what you do is you try to subvert those. And the best way to do that is uh, you don't do it by yourself. You do it with a colleague, perhaps something less common within history as a discipline, but you co-write a piece and you have the conversation with one another. What are our assumptions about the both events 
that we're talking about, let's write them down and let's see if they actually hold up, if we can then compare it to the literature. The second point then is individuation, which is through juxtaposition of two events, you become more aware of both. And then you try to formulate a tailored analysis for each of those two events for certain components that you focus on. Uh, so for example, the example that we chose in the paper, Adolf Hitler versus Donald Trump, is that similar or different? So if you look at those two events, we pick some components of it, and then we start unraveling it, questioning it first, and then coming up with a new analytical you know, assessment for both based on that questioning phase. Uh, then the third step is prospection, which is very much meant to be forward-looking. Uh, we as historians are often very reluctant to do a policy recommendation or something like that for good reason, right? Because, I mean, these things often don't work out very well. There's a lot of things, a lot of moving parts. But at the same time, we do feel that if you want to engage in policymaking, a historically informed perspective on it is probably better. So based on that, we are going to formulate some points of intervention on the local, national, global, or other level. So I guess in broad terms, that's kind of the approach that we're uh, proposing. Well, let's go into that example that you brought up before about Hitler and Trump. This is a very commonly brought up analogy, yet also very problematic. Guide us through using the magic yard ball to unpack this analogy. How would you go about that? Yeah, so the first thing here is to keep in mind that there's a very strong moral dimension to it. When we talk about Hitler, Nazi Germany in the Second World War, we have the Holocaust, the worst crimes in human history, uh, crimes against humanity in mind. Um, so when people invoke that, it's very much uh, often meant to make a moral point, right? Oh, this is going to go very terribly. Um, this is all going to go wrong. We try to step away from that a little bit. What we instead decided was, what if we just take it seriously? for this approach, right? Like there might be something to it. So let's just delve into it a little bit. The first part was the interrogation that I spoke about earlier. So uh, together with my colleague, Sara, we had several sessions where we just had conversations. If you look at the situation in the US circa 2016, 2017, which is the point that we're talking about, and then Germany, the 1930s, early 1930s, what would be some points of comparison or difference? And here we already encountered like, okay, we have assumptions about personality, about violence, about media, how the landscape is organized. Uh, those things are still in our assessment. But at the same time, we felt like our initial assumptions aren't necessarily entirely correct. It's not just media, it's contextualized media. Um, the violence needs to be viewed on different timescales. There's a longer run up, I think, in the US than you have in Germany, when you look at the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, so that's kind of the stuff that we came up with. And based on that, then we arrived at, I guess, like two key focal points that we wanted to analyze in the end. Uh, so we talked about Germany and the United States as polarized societies in their time periods, very broadly speaking. Uh, and then secondly, we spoke about Hitler and Trump as political figures in context. So we look at them as people, but also political actors who operate in a specific setting. So one of the things that we would talk about, for example, is violence. If you think about just killings, murdering, a key element that we would see in Germany is if you look at the end of the First World War, well, they're already like four or five years of total warfare 
where the entire population was mobilized. Now, at the end of that, what you see in Central and Eastern Europe is an entire collapse of states, right? Several empires completely disintegrate. The Russian Empire, the Habsburg Empire, and the same kind of also happens with the German Empire, right? So a lot of what happens in Germany in 1917-18 needs to be understood in that light. The German state tries to maintain itself because there's a big threat that's going to just vanish. One of the things that the German state then does is it embraces kind of a revolution from below. And then at the same time, because there are radical forces on the left and the right who try to go against that, they actually adopt the support of several paramilitaries, Freikorpe, so, you know, separate militarized units. Now, this is significant because um, all of a sudden, to kind of recapture its monopoly on violence that the German state had, it kind of leases it out a bit in a way, right? I wouldn't say in a mercenary Wagner kind of sense that we're seeing in Russia right now, but at the same time, it does try to adopt like several of these extreme or these radical right-wing paramilitary groups to help support the state in suppressing these more radical tendencies, especially on the left. Now, I think this is important because all of a sudden you get some sort of a militarization of society where the state, in trying to uphold its monopoly, actually loses it, which is going to become an important context if you then look at what happens during the 1930s, later on, after the economic crisis of the 20s. So that's Germany for violence. If we then trace it to the US, I think there you very much need to see a way longer buildup period where various elements just come together and create kind of the overall culture of armed violence that you have in the US. In the US, there are groups that try to overthrow the government. You can think about uh, extreme right-wing groups like Atomwaffen and so on, right? neo-Nazi groups even. But at the same time, the landscape of violence is also different and more scattered. And here, some of the points that we then highlight is, well, part of that just goes back to the early history of the US where a certain democratized notion of violence emerges. So there is a state, but people also have a right to carry arms themselves. This becomes stronger in the 19th century when you know mass production of firearms increases and it kind of becomes both a commercial element and an identity element. Having a firearm is something that is part of a US identity. An extra point that kind of accelerated the violence is if you look at the 1960s and 70s, also also just the U.S. state initiates some sort of a war on drugs, say, uh, which increases the militarization of the police forces in the U.S. So what you then get is increase interior armed violence overall uh, because of widely disseminated ownership and then a state apparatus that also uses weaponry and firearms more extensively, interiorly speaking, to engage with violence and all these other developments. So in that sense, you already see that the configuration of violence, if you could call it, is different in the US prior to 2016, 2017 in comparison to Germany. In the US, it's more this broader context where armed violence is more common over Overall, whereas in Germany, this anti-state element and trying to take over the state with violent action becomes more directly visible. Just to give one example of how our analysis went. 
actually, that's so interesting because you discuss not only the importance of, as you just said, the introduction of violence into politics and society, but also the sort of process of disillusionment with democracy, even suggesting that, for example, in the US, actually democracy came too early for them. What exactly do you mean by that? Oh, yeah. I think here there are two separate points. So disillusionment with democracy, I think we very much need to understand this as um, if you look at the interwar period, democracy is very new in certainly in Europe, actually across the world, right? Like universal suffrage for men, for women, in many cases, it doesn't even exist yet. In Belgium, it was only introduced in 1948. Shame on my country, I guess, in that sense. So universal suffrage in many countries is something that was introduced after the First World War. So I would say across Europe, but certainly also Germany specifically, there's this broader understanding that mass voting, that's it's not something that is effective in dealing with something like the Great Depression or something like that. It just detracts. We need stronger action. So this is like a general cultural understanding that kind of grows, for example, in Europe uh, during this time period. Now, if we then talk about democracy came too early, this is uh, a notion that was introduced by a colleague who worked here at Erasmus University, uh, Peter Spierberg. He means something different in the sense that if you look at violence in the US and in Europe, the states in Europe usually had already acquired a pretty solid monopoly on violence prior to 18th, 19th century when democratization, you know, gets in full swing. In the US, this is different in the sense that the US state as we know it today is a late 18th century phenomenon. So there, this monopoly on violence hadn't developed in the same way yet as it had in European states. This is why this more democratized, decentralized notion of arms possession became more widely accepted in a US context. So the point that Spierenberg then makes is because this development towards a monopoly on violence hadn't developed, yet this broader baseline for violence became more accepted in a U.S. setting. So I guess that's then the, the point that you could make also for the, the armed violence that you have. Going back to the analogy between Trump and Hitler, in your discussion in the paper, you bring up them as political figures in their own context, right? How does uh, the charisma of each of them factor in the analysis for you? Can you walk us through that? Yes. So I think the charisma for both is very important. I think it's fair to say that charismatic authority, which is a German notion introduced by Weber, uh, I think it applies to both of them. You could make the case that charismatic authority in the US is something different than it would be in Germany. In the US, you can reference cinematic traditions, right? Hollywood stars who come to the fore. This is something American, right? Uh, much different uh, in a German setting, certainly also in the interwar period. So I I think it applies to both. At the same time, there are certainly also points of distinction that I think are very important to highlight, especially if you compare 1933 to 2016-2017. The first element that I would highlight is image building. Um, if you look at Hitler's trajectory, one of the key things that happens pretty early on, once he starts rising to prominence within uh, the NSDAP, the National Socialist Party, is um, Hitler has very extreme political goals and ideals, right? Uh, genocidal, colonial, 
those things. If the party wants to make Hitler more appealing to the voting public, then they have to construct a certain image for him. So what the party then does together with Hitler is do a very active effort at building up this very specific image of Hitler uh, as leader. Now, what you then see there is the media ecology or the media context of the 1920s and 30s is radically different from the one that we have now in the sense that stricter gatekeeping was possible at the time. So one of the things that you will see uh, with Hitler is that, for example, if you look at his personal photographer or anything, any of the people involved in the image building, they would go through a very thorough selection process of which images could be used and could not be used. So um, if Hitler is smiling in a good way, but there are two many guards in the background and that looks menacing, then we're not going to use this picture because that's not going to create the image that we want to create. So there's this very thorough selection process of these are the particular photographs, these are the particular audio segments, whatever, right? It becomes even like a branding effort where they will do a pretty extensive effort to like replicate images, uh, turn them into fan postcards and all of that to disseminate it across the country. So there's this very clear propagandistic effort of image building where strict gatekeeping is present. Now, if you then juxtapose that with Trump circa 2016, here I think it's important to highlight that Trump is also this charismatic figure, but he has this quite different approach to building up this charismatic figure. There's this famous book, The Art of the Deal, written in the 80s and then, you know, become more popular in the 2000s. So what he says is... One thing I've learned about the press is that they're always hungry for a good story, and the more sensational, the better. If you do things that are bold or controversial, the press is going to write about you. The funny thing is that even a critical story, which might be hurtful personally, can be very valuable for your business. And this is kind of reflected in what Trump has done over the past decades. Trump often does outrageous things which make him look bad, ridiculous, or all of those things. But at the same time, he soaks up all the attention towards him, and it is very beneficial. It has helped him to build up his business over the past decades. And if you then also look at the presidential campaign prior to 2016, he kind of did the same thing. He was constantly pushing outrageous claims about Mexicans, about other candidates, and well, the media wasn't really prepared for it. So channels like CNN and all that, they would just, you know, put the camera on Trump and they kind of fell in the trap that Trump kind of had set for them. So what Trump did very effectively was through outrage, hack the attention landscape. This is something to be very cautious of also not towards the future. But I think here you see a key difference with Hitler. Hitler is also about mobilization, but about strict image building. This is the image that we want to portray, and it must look heroic, good for Hitler. For Trump, it's also soaking up all the attention, but in this very bombastic, all over the place kind of way, which perhaps also leads us to a recommendation. This attention hacking, certainly in a contemporary digitized space, is something to be very wary of when it comes to political campaigns. You actually just mentioned kind of like the recommendation stage of framework you propose, and I think that's called prospection. How did the prospecting stage look for this analogy in question besides the recommendation you just gave us? Yeah, the, the prospection stage is very much based on the difference that we saw with the situation in Germany. We would put forward certain elements that are more directly applicable to the U.S. political landscape. 
right? So the, the first thing uh, with Trump would be, and, and I guess CNN isn't really succeeding all that well at the moment and other channels either, but be very wary of attention hacking because this is the strategy that Trump, but ultimately also various other political agents or actors have increasingly come to adopt, right? It is something that we should be very wary about. The second thing that we then would highlight is Trump isn't like Hitler. The violence that you see in the US has a different configuration. So the response to it also has to be different. The militia landscape, so the landscape of the armed groups in the US is a bit scattered. Um, in a way, it is more democratized. So there's a democratized sentiment that underpins some of these movements. So you have to focus very specifically on the movements that are willing to go a step further and actively, you know, take over the state. So the neo-Nazi groups and then the affiliated ones. So be very cautious in when you try to de-radicalize groups that you, well, have a clear view on who it is that you're de-radicalizing um, and that you then have this tailored approach to it. Um, there's that uh, and so on. So um, these are some of the points that we then put forward that could hopefully help to have a more effective response towards radicalization and increasing violence in the U.S. Let me go off script a little bit here as a way of concluding our talk now. I wanted to ask about your personal take on the on the analogy as it stands today between Trump and Hitler. But I'm going to add a little spice on that. I was wondering if you are familiar a little bit with Bolsonaro and his you know, rise and now very imminent fall from grace. Can you uh, attempt comments based on this framework if you were to compare Bolsonaro and Trump, for example? Okay, maybe I'm going to give a bit of a cop-out answer at first, but it serves the purpose. So I think that interrogation, the first step that I started with, would be key here. So it would be deliberately connected to my framework to be a bit reluctant, you know, because I mean, Brazilian history is not my focal point. So then I guess like the interrogation phase would very much be present here. Something that you could add, and, and then I'm curious about your thoughts about this. I think that certainly Brazil has a very extensive history with right-wing and fascist affiliations. Uh, so if you look at the fascist movements that erupted in Europe in the 1920s with Mussolini and then later Hitler, um, that had quite a bit of resonance in Brazil and a lot of interconnection even. So in that sense, movements can jump quite easily transnationally. So if you have like a march on Rome that Mussolini undertook in 22, then that might resonate with various groups in Brazil. I think that you can also kind of see that with what Bolsonaro then did, so just like challenging the election result, which was kind of like a direct copy also from, from what happened in the US. So I think those resonances are very much there. So that's certainly something to be uh, to watch out for. But I was also thinking of the fact that Trump and Bolsonaro, to a certain extent, were also in conversation, right? And at least, you know, via Twitter and mediatically. So in the case of a historical analogy between Trump and Hitler, you have the separation. They might evoke this idea metaphorically in minds of people, right? But in this case of Bolsonaro and Trump, they were actually coexisting and sometimes exchanging ideas, right? So I think that might also be important in the, in the process, right? Absolutely. And, and here I would think uh, of work by Kurt Weiland, who is a political scientist. He did an analysis of revolutionary movements in Europe and Latin America in the 1830s and then onwards. And he very much also pointed to diffusion effects so that if there's a certain revolutionary movement in, say, France, that 
uh, various other groups across Europe would also see the chance like, oh, now is our moment. Let's just go for it. And then depending on the local political configuration that you would have, you would have different responses to this like echoing movement of revolutionary action. I think this is exactly the same that we're seeing right now. I think that Bolsonaro very directly responds to Trump. I think that that's a very good point. But so certainly Brexit and Trump's election, they have kind of like created this model, say, or this inspiration that people with similar affiliations or similar sympathies they very much try to copy. So the attention hacking that I referenced earlier and that we've seen in many places, people are very much, you know, buying into that, doing the same thing, saying outrageous things, draw attention to themselves. The same thing with dealing with truth. It's exactly also this approach. We're going to just keep, you know, refuting it. And at a certain point, we will make people doubt, which is also a very clear political strategy, is also something that is being copied across the board. So I think if you then uh, put Bolsonaro and Trump next to one another, then I guess my view at least would be that that those are very much communicating agents in a moment where this is kind of the model that various people uh, try to replicate. And I think maybe kind of to wrap it all up, I had a question. Your work, you mentioned that, for example, in the first step, one of the main issues might be that your own assumptions might kind of hinder your understanding. So if you could tell us maybe a bit about more about that, that would be very interesting. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Very happy to. Maybe I was a bit too quick earlier on, but so this very much refers to the interrogation phase, which we really do think is important because there's a lot of things to interrogate. At the same time, one of the things that we highlight is that many people already have scripts in their heads. Uh, We have certain storylines that we already know. Uh, So, for example, a very classic way to talk about 1914, the start of the First World War, is that we wandered into it. Those are storylines that we often already have in our heads. And so a key element of interrogation is that you start breaking those down. Because those are usually things that pose some sort of a straitjacket on the historical events. Those events need to breathe on their own, right? They have their own internal logic, their own causation. So that's the thing that you need to give as much space to as possible. Which is also why if we then arrived at stories about violence in the US and Germany, that's kind of what we tried to do. We tried to formulate a new storyline, quote unquote, that very much deviated from these older templates or scripts. Uh, So I guess like a key warning uh, or key element would then be when you have an analogy and you do the interrogation phase, it's about, you know, research, what happened and how can we understand this best, but also be very wary of these like basic storylines that we tend to use very often and try to come up with something that fits your material better, I guess. This was great, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about historical analogies. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Yeah, thank you very much. I hope it was all clear. People can definitely read more because maybe some points were a bit fast. We will link to the paper on the show notes. This podcast is produced at the History Department at the Erasmus University School of History, Culture and Communication. The production team is Natalia da Silva Perez, Peter van den Hede and Isabella Restrepo Vargas. Financial support comes from the Erasmus University Lustrum 110 Project Group. This podcast is released under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, Creative Commons license. Thank Thank you for for listening. listening.